Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. missionary had a goal, a dream, to purchase a particular piece of land in order to build sort of a, a retreat center, maybe a camp, a resort type thing for those Christians in Hong Kong to come to for various events. And he was very excited because a hotel had been foreclosed upon and he knew the price would not be all that terribly, terribly expensive. And so he began to make contacts and even travel to various places all throughout the world to try to raise money for this particular place. And he didn't raise a dime. Nobody saw the same vision that he saw. No one had the same excitement he had. And he didn't raise a dime to purchase this. And he was all dejected. He went back to Hong Kong, began to go about his work. And a couple of days later, a few days later, a letter came in the mail. It was from a young American girl, written in her own hand, about how she wanted to help in any way she could to purchase this hotel in Hong Kong. And included in that letter, written in her own hand, was a single dollar bill. One dollar. That was the entirety of the amount this missionary had raised. He knew the time was short, and so he decided to take a stab at it. Why not? And you know where the story is going. He went to the company and said, I've got a dollar. And they accepted it as payment in full for the entire complex that became a Christian resort, camp center, retreat center, in Hong Kong. Stories like that touch us because, for one thing, there's a child involved, and what story about kids isn't cute? Well, not every story about kids is cute. What stories like that about kids aren't cute? But also, it reminds us of how God can take something that to most of us seems pretty insignificant and use, use it for amazing things. I mean, it's just, just a dollar. For most of us, that's no big deal. But to a little child, that dollar might be a week. Back then, it might have been a month's worth of chores and work. It might have been the entire, entire amount of, of money found in that little girl's piggy bank. I don't know. But to a child, that meant a lot to give a dollar to that work and to take the time to write that little letter and send it halfway around the world. I hope you have your Bible this morning. We'll turn back to the end of Mark chapter 12. That text we read together a little while ago, as Kyle read for us so well, a very famous account. And we're calling our lesson this morning, Giving Our All. But in reality, this is only partially a lesson about giving. In reality, it's a lesson about trusting God. 
Because if you think about it, any time we talk about giving, whether it's financially or giving of our time or giving of our talents or anything else, any time we talk about giving to God, we're really thinking about what it means to trust. And Mark chapter 12, comes, as it comes to a close, you recall, as we read, you have that very famous account of this widow who gives what really seems like nothing, and it almost was nothing. But for some reason, it caught the notice of Jesus enough for him to talk about her to those who were with him on that day. And if you please, it caught the attention of God enough to have the Holy Spirit write down these four or five verses for us, for us to have as an example and a reminder all of these centuries later and as long as time stands, what it really means to give. We're going to think this morning about this section of Scripture in three points. We're going to think about the contrast that's there. Then we're going to think about the content, the comment that Jesus made And then we're going to notice some things that aren't there and think about some applications and conclusions from sort of the rest of the story that we don't know. But think in the first place with me about the stark contrast. It is remarkable what you see. And part of what gives this account its power is not just the the seemingly very small amount this widow puts into the treasury, but how it stands in such sharp relief, such stark contrast to what others were putting in. The text tells us in Mark chapter 12 that the, many others were putting in money into this offering box. Now, this was not a worship service like we have here, like we had a few minutes ago. We pass around some, some baskets or some trays or something. That, that's not really what's going on here. I've got a picture on the screens before you, and this is uh, sort of a, I guess you call it a computer-generated model. I did not make it. I found it, okay, of, of what these things looked like, basically. There were 13 of them around the temple itself, and they were basically boxes. That's why it's called an offering box or a treasury box with sort of a, 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 a remember old phonographs, those things on top? It was sort of like that, kind of a tuba bell that came out of the top of the thing, and you simply walked by whenever you had opportunity and dropped money into that metal part, that bell part, and it fell down into the, the treasury box, the offering box. And those bells, this one's probably not perfectly accurate because usually they face more outward toward the outside of the temple. Now, part of what made this a contrast was what was seen by Jesus and his disciples, but also it could have been, it could have been an embarrassment to the lady. Remember how often Jesus in his ministry talked about how some of those in his day liked to do some of their religious stuff for show? You might think of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about them standing on the street corners and praying long prayers or how they would make sure when they fasted, they disfigured their faces so everybody would go, wow, look at him. He's so religious. That also happened here. You have a metal bell and you have metal coins. Guess what happens when you put coins into that bell? You have that loud tinkling sound as it goes down into the box. And there were some who would take advantage of that. And if they were going to give, let's put in our modern terminology, they're going to give 30 bucks, they'd make sure to get it basically in pennies. So they could stand there and tinkle, 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 tinkle pennies for minute after minute after minute down this bell. And people go, wow. Look at the amount that's going in there. Or they would take sacks of money and drop large sacks in there so it just would bound down into that bell. That may not be what happened here, but there's no way this widow, with what she gave, could have even faked what she was giving. But this is more of a difference than just in sound. And that's one reason why Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples were watching. They weren't just listening. 
We don't know if that was what was going on that day. If some were giving large amounts of money by the sound of it, they were seeing what was going on. There was no way to miss that what was going into that offering box by so many others on that day really was probably quite a large amount of money with each individual gift. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. In that one statement, you have not just one contrast. You really have at least three. First, there is a contrast in her state. It simply calls her poor. I guess every translation I looked at used that word. But there's more than one word in the original language for poor. This word means destitute. This is not just poor as in contrast to those who had a whole lot of money and she could have been maybe middle class or maybe lower. This was not that. This is a word that was very often used for those who even had to beg for their very livelihood. In fact, Brother Wayne Jackson in his New Testament commentary suggests that this word carried with it the idea that someone was so poor that they couldn't cover it up. He uses the phrase that they were conspicuously poor. There was no way they could even look middle class or look rich. They didn't have enough to even even try to look like anything else. Now, he also suggests in his commentary that this word does not mean that this was someone who you know stole to try to get out of it. This, this was you know, someone who was just simply, by their state, poor, beggarly, destitute. And there was no way to hide that. There was also a contrast in her situation. A poor widow. I'm thankful to live in the time and place in which we live. And one of the reasons for that is because our, our nation, our culture has been influenced so much through the years by Christianity. Not to say we're still you know, perfectly Christian. We, we know that's not true, but, but we know that over the years there have been so many influences of, of, of the Christian philosophy and the Christian teaching. And one of those is how we take care of those who've lost their spouse, widows and widowers. It is interesting that this lady in Mark chapter 12 is destitute despite being a widow. Because wasn't the Old Testament law, wasn't part of that to take care of those who are widows? And now in New Testament times, we're commanded to make certain that they are cared for. Visit the widows and orphans, James tells us. The book of uh, Second Timothy, First Timothy, excuse me, has the, the uh, implication for churches to take care of those who are widows indeed and so on and so forth. But this lady in that day and time, if she was sort of outside of culture at all, when you lost a spouse, that was it as far as any sort of livelihood, money-making ability, or anything else. There's a contrast in her situation. But the clearest contrast, of course, is in the amount of the gift. Different translations have different things as far as what she actually gave. The English Standard Version, two small copper coins which make a penny. There are other translations. You may have a footnote or something it gives, that tries to give what this means. I found it interesting. Albert Barnes, many years ago in his commentary, said that the amount she gave was actually so small you, can, you can't calculate it. I thought that was kind of an easy way out, don't you? That's kind of an easy way out of it. But the, 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 the term here was for the smallest coin that was in circulation commonly among the Jews. And again, many translations say it added up to, to a penny or a mite, something really, really, really small. It added up to approximately one sixty-fourth of a day's wage for a less than common laborer. When you add those two together, that's what it adds up to. By the way, I thought it was really odd that 
the little illustration I began with of the little girl who gave a dollar. I, I don't know what an average wage is in America, but it is interesting if you just said $100 is an average day for a common laborer and you take a 64th of that, guess what it equals out to? A dollar and seven cents. So basically, she gave about a buck in our modern terminology and probably a little less than that. Compared to others who were dropping in, who knows how much, but greater amounts of money than that. And so the contrast is complete. You have rich people, those who have a lot by this world's standards, who are dropping in large sums, contrast with this widow who is so poor that she can't even cover up the fact that she's poor, and she puts in what basically amounts to a couple of minutes worth of wages for a common laborer, really less than a common laborer. But Jesus, being God, knows more than just what those people see. And you know as well as I do on Sunday mornings, we're thinking about the words of Jesus, and so far, all we've noticed is what Mark is inspired to write for us. So in the second place, let's think about what Jesus said. Let's think about the Savior's comment. It is the ability of Jesus to take this contrast and remind us of what is really important that adds even more weight to this text for us. Jesus is able to see beyond just what those disciples see about the amount that's being dropped into those treasury boxes being God being divine being God with us Emmanuel Jesus knew the background the backstory of all of this and he wanted those with him and the Holy Spirit wants us today to see that God knows more than what any person could have perceived in the moment the opening words of Jesus had to cause his listeners to kind of stop and take pause for a second and wonder if they really heard what they thought they heard. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. Now, if you were there with Jesus on that day, you probably had to be going, what? Is he really paying attention to what's going on here? Now, before we get to the second part of that, I think it's interesting that Jesus takes the time to be very specific, to make sure they know who he is talking about when he talks about this poor widow. By the way, if you have a King James Version, back in verse 42, it says a certain widow came and dropped this money in. It's possible, I guess, this was a widow who was known. With the word certain, I don't know that. It could just mean the certain one Jesus was talking about later. But it is interesting that when Jesus begins to talk, he makes sure they know who he's talking about. I can almost see Jesus pointing or kind of nodding his head in that direction, making sure they know it's that widow. This poor widow, the one who can't cover it up, this is the one I'm talking about. But then as he begins to talk about her, he says something very interesting, doesn't he? He says that she gave more than all those who were putting their money in. There's a couple of different ways to read that, isn't there? You could read that if you were standing there with Jesus or sitting there with Jesus you could have had somebody in mind. Maybe four or five minutes earlier, you had seen somebody walk by and drop in just an unfathomable amount of money. And maybe you just had somebody in mind, Jesus saying, oh, she put in more than that. But it also reads another way, doesn't it? It also reads, she put in more than all of them put together. Now, which one is it? It could be both. It could be either one. But the way Jesus words this makes, makes them understand he is talking about something really beyond their imagination to fathom. I'm talking about that poor widow, that one right over there, and she has given more either than whoever you thought put in the most or than all of them put together. Now, if you were there on that day, you had to be going, hang on a second. There's no way Jesus realizes what's really going on here. 
because I've heard the tinkling sounds of those coins going in. And beyond that, Mark tells us they were watching. I saw what they were putting in. I saw how much they put in. I saw how much she put in. And maybe they think, okay, he's getting ready to transition into another parable, one of these stories. But he doesn't. Instead, he simply gives this conclusion. They gave out of their abundance. They contributed out of their abundance. While this poor widow, out of her poverty, he says, had given everything she had. All she had to live on. Now, those who were with Christ on that day knew that she was poor. Remember, she was poor to the point that she couldn't cover it up. She couldn't have worn nice clothes that day to cover up the fact that she was poor. But maybe they thought she's not really as poor as she looks. Maybe she's miserly. Maybe maybe she has some somewhere, but, you know, there's some people who just like to dress down all the time. I, I don't get that, but they wanted to dress like beggar. Maybe that's her. Or maybe maybe they just she has something that she just hasn't sold yet, and she could go sell that and have money, and that'd be fine. Or maybe she has some money hidden somewhere, and she just doesn't look good today. After all, when those two little metal coins went tinkling down into that offering box, that high-pitched sound probably was embarrassing to her. And so surely, surely there's more somewhere. But Jesus knew the backstory. He knew her. He knew her situation. Those coins, as tiny as they were, where they added up to a mite or a penny or a dollar or whatever it was, they exhausted anything and everything she could have used to live on past that day. You think, well, she still had the clothes on her back. But remember, she was so poor, her clothes would have been something nobody else wanted. She couldn't have taken them and sold them to anybody else because she couldn't cover up how poor she was. If she had a place to live, which really is unlikely, but if she did, she couldn't have sold it in some hot real estate market and turned that around for quick cash that evening and all this money from some amazing real estate. That's not even in play here. There was no retirement account to tap. There was no pension left from her departed spouse. There was no hidden money somewhere in a pantry. Whatever she had to live on to purchase food, whatever she had to purchase many medical care she might need, or better clothes to face the elements, whatever she had went down that offering box, down that tinkling bell, into the offering box in that day. Jesus knew that. And now Jesus is saying that's what she gave. Let me say this parenthetically. I don't think on this occasion that Jesus was saying that those others who had given some money were sinful. He was saying they had more to give. He's trying simply to draw a contrast into how he knows the heart, the background, the motivation of each of these people who came on that day. And in reality, Jesus is reminding was reminding his disciples, was reminding us of a principle that we know and we see spelled out even all the way back in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Samuel was told to go anoint the next king of Israel? Saul had failed. Saul looked like the part of the king, but yet Saul you know, had made all kinds of mistakes. And God told Samuel, you go anoint another king, one after my own heart. And he goes to the house of Jesse. And Jesse's oldest walks in. You remember Samuel's response when the first one walks in? I'm paraphrasing here. Basically, that's got to be him. He looks the part. He's tall, he's the oldest, but what did God tell him? 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, you just see the outward appearance. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man weighs the outward appearance, but God sees, God looks at the heart. 
that principle found all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is in reality what you see being lived out here in Mark chapter 12. Jesus knew the backstory. He knew the heart of this widow as she dropped these coins, these two insignificant, basically, coins to the world standards into that, uh, that offering box in that day. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew not just the amount that was being given, whether it was large or small, He knew whether it was really a sacrificial gift or not. And so what was Jesus trying to get us to see? I don't think Jesus was trying to tell us to to leave here this morning, go home and sell all of our houses and, you know, put our car on eBay and and, and liquidate all of our retirement accounts and, you know, sell any treasures you might have around our house and and we'll come tonight and write a massive check to the church because we sold everything and don't have anything except the clothes. I I don't think that's the point of it. I don't think that's what he's trying to get us to see. But he is trying to get us to see one massive, important point. And that is that God does not just see the amount. He sees the motivation. Giving costs us something. It's not just duty. Remember what Paul writes to the Corinthians about giving a passage we nearly always use. We have a sermon on that subject particularly. He would tell them not to give begrudgingly or grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. They, they pass the trays on Sunday morning and I, I pull out a check or I pull out a, some kind of you know, bill and, and I set it there over the, the, the tray. And the whole time I'm letting go, I'm thinking, man, I know what I could be doing with that. And it sure would be nice if we could go out to eat Monday night, but I've got to put that in the plate or somebody sitting next to me is going to think I'm not really a Christian. Not grudgingly. Not of necessity. By the way, the word cheerful in that passage that Paul wrote is the word from which we get our word hilarity. Hilarious. The word is hilarion. It's almost as if Paul was saying, I I want you not to give grudgingly, not of necessity, but I want you to give to a point where you're kind of (laughs) going, I can't really believe I'm doing this, but isn't this fun? And it is. It is. And so you have the Savior's comment. He knows the backstory. He knows what's going on. He's making it clear that we understand that God knows not just the amount, but the motivation. When we sing songs like, I surrender all, do we really mean it? Or do we just sing it? Now that's the text. But I told you there were three points. And you're thinking, but there's no more verses. You know, preachers can do some weird things sometimes. We can preach verses that aren't there or something. Part of the power of this story is what's not found. Because I want you to think with me for the last few moments by way of application of three silent conclusions. That's where Mark 12 ends. Now, I know Mark didn't write chapters. He goes right into chapter 13. We'll get to that in just a second. But there is no follow-up to this story about the widow, is there? You don't come later in Mark and see something where you you see an indication, oh, that's the widow that put the, I I get that. You don't come to the book of Acts and find some Christian somewhere in Jerusalem or somewhere around Jerusalem where you go, oh, that's that widow I read about in Mark. It's just not there. You have Mark's account of, of what goes on that day. You have the words of Jesus about what she gave compared to what the heirs gave, and that's it. What can we draw from it? Conclusion number one is a question. You ever fear what happened to the widow? 
I don't know how many times I have read or heard people say, now I know there's nothing there about it, but I just know that widow was taken care of later that day. Really? Now I'll tell you, before you get mad at me, personally, I believe she was too. But folks, it's not there, is it? There is nothing else about her. There is nothing found here about this widow whatsoever. But what if that really was everything? And what if she really was outcast by society? I don't want to be grim or sober, but you just read the end of the story. Or... Maybe she is like that widow back in, in Elijah's day that was, had, had a debt to pay and didn't have anything to do. And he said, do you have anything? She says, I've got some oil. And he said, well, bring all the jars out. Bring anything you can. And the oil is just not going to stop. So you, maybe something like that happened. I have no earthly idea. But I think in the silence of it, there is an application for us. This widow trusted enough. There's our key word, trusting. She trusted enough that whether the amount was huge or whether it was tiny as far as the world would perceive it, and whether she lived or whether she died, she was going to trust God. I have no earthly idea what happened to her. But I trust that God took care of her either here or in the hereafter. Conclusion number two is what happens next in the book of Mark. And that is that Jesus leaves the temple after this lesson. If you look up in Mark chapter 13, remember Mark didn't write chapters. He just wrote a, he just wrote a book. He, he just wrote a document for us. Mark 13 begins with Jesus walking away from the temple and talking about how the temple was going to be destroyed. Now, he's going to return to that area later uh, near the crucifixion and so on and so forth. But the last thing basically Jesus does in his ministry near the temple is to deal with this, or to speak about, I should say, this widow who gives basically nothing. The last thing that Jesus talks about while he's at the temple is about trust and sacrifice and giving. Does that not tell us something? How often in the ministry of Jesus... Had he tried to get those who had some of the world's goods to see they were trusting in their own stuff and not really trusting in God. I wonder if some of those who were there with him on that day didn't still need that lesson. We're still kind of trusting their own stuff and kind of trying to do it both ways. And before he walks away from the temple, Jesus says, here's somebody who's got it. And it's somebody who society would have said, forget them. By the way, specifically, if this woman was a Jew, which you would think she was by putting money at the temple offering box, do you not have a connection here with one of the woes that Jesus pronounced of the religious leaders of his day who devoured widows' houses? She was supposed to be taken care of anyway. But the ones who looked like they had it all together were the ones who could give out of their abundance. And the one who had basically nothing gave it all. And when Jesus saw that example of giving, he taught and he left. Leaving a picture of sacrifice that he himself would pick up. Because conclusion number three is not to take anything away from the widow. 
but it's to remind us that the Savior gave more than she did. The Son of Man has nowhere even to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere even to lay his head. Jesus never had much by way of this world's goods. He really didn't have anything by way of this world's goods except what people gave him and, and helped him with. But even beyond that, you've got a widow who drops these, these two coins, these, basically a penny into the offering box, and she walks away that day. We don't know what happened to her, but she walks away that day. And a matter of a few weeks later, the one who taught this lesson wouldn't walk away. He would give it all. And we're not talking about dollar bills or mites or pennies or checks. He gave it all. I don't want to diminish what she did. But what Jesus really did here was to remind us of the same principle that he would tell his apostles. He, he would tell them that, he loved, that, that they would love one another, then people would know his disciples if they would love one another. And remember what Paul told the church? Even while we were his enemies... Christ died for us. He wasn't saying don't love one another, but he's saying whatever love we can have for each other, whatever love we have for God, it's already been topped. There's no way we can match. There's no way we can come close to what Jesus did for us. And the same thing happens at the end of Mark chapter 12. You've got somebody that we hold up rightly so. I'm not trying to take away from her. Rightly so as an example, an amazing example. But by leaving the story without an ending, it reminds us somebody gave more than even she did. And it's the one who taught the lesson. Because he wouldn't walk away from giving the greatest gift of them all. The very blood of his life. Financially, you may have a lot by American standards. You may have a little. But if we have anything by American standards, I know we have more than this widow had all these years ago. There's no doubt about that. And we also have heard all the things about how much even the, the poorest of Americans have compared to the rest of the world. I'm not going to all the statistics this morning. This is not a lesson about percentages or amounts. It's a lesson about trust and motives. What motivates our giving financially, time-wise, talent-wise, every way, what motivates that will show up in percentages and amounts, yes. But while God is concerned at some level to the amount, He is first concerned about the attitude and about the motivation. And how easy is it to, to give any and every excuse not to give what we should? When you think about financial giving, it's so easy to give excuses. Well, I... I would give more, but I'm just not sure I trust the elders enough to give. There's some consideration there. I understand that. But, folks, the New Testament does not tell us to give based upon the eldership. I've heard others say, well, I would give more, but I don't like this program they just started. Or I've even heard I don't like the preacher. Okay, <laughs> I've heard it. It's fine. All right. And so I'm going to withhold. I'm not going to give as much. Find the standard. It's not, do I agree with program, preacher, elders, 
It's how much do I trust God? And look at what he's given to me. I've heard people talk about how much they can't give anymore, and I get that. But is my cable bill larger than how much I give? Is how much I spend on food and clothing far more than what I would ever give? And the excuses go on and on. I, I don't have any idea what anybody in this congregation gives other than myself and my family. It's, it's none of my business. So I'm not talking about anybody or to anybody specifically or any group. I have no earthly idea. What is my business is my own heart and the willingness to answer the question, am I really giving my all? Am I really giving not just financially, oh, that's part of it, but of my time, my abilities, my talents, to as much as I possibly can try in some way to match what has already been given to me. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. How many times do we sing things like that? I surrender all. And he really did. And I never could repay it. But do I hold on to the things of this world so tightly? that I never even try. I listened to an interview just the other day of a young man, member of the church, up in the Florence area. He's homeschooled, but he's enough of an athlete that he made the varsity football team at Florence High School. Gone through summer two-a-days, started the practices just before school began and he began to realize something was different about his life and he didn't like it he's now 16 he was 15 this happened just a few weeks ago he turned 16 just a couple of weeks ago and he was good enough that they thought probably by the end of the year he'd be starting as a wide receiver he went to his head coach first his position coach and his head coach and told him, I'm quitting. And of course, you know the coach's first response was basically, yeah, you can't cut it. I, I get it. You've made it through two a days, but you know, now with school, he said, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. You know what he told his coach? 15-year-old boy. It's consuming me, and I miss my faith and my family. He's 15, 16 now. And I will confess to you, when I heard that story, I was put to shame. There's a young man who got it. That nothing of this world, not that those things are bad, but nothing in this world should come between my development as a Christian my faith in God and helping my family go to heaven? Am I really willing to say I surrender all?
Are you ready to say that this morning? To give your life to the one who died for you and gave his all? Are you as a Christian willing to say, I've been trying to have it both ways, but I'm ready to put these things behind me. I'm ready to make sure that God really is first in everything that I do and put him first by asking for forgiveness or encouragement. And if we can assist you, we invite you to come or we stand and sing to encourage you.